For years, Nathan McCall has been writing about race, racism, and injustice in uh, the United States, uh, largely through his writings with the Washington Post, and also through his memoir, Makes Me Want to Holler. Uh, now his new book and his first novel, titled Them, explores issues of race and gentrification through the story of Barlow, a middle-aged black man who lives in Atlanta's fourth ward. When a white couple moves in next door, Barlow eventually forms a friendship with the wife while continuing to experience tension over the ways white people are changing the neighborhood. Uh, Nathan McCall joins us here on KUCI. Good morning. Good morning. How are you this morning? Good, good. Well, I think we have a little bit of an echo, but we'll try to uh, work through it. Okay. Um, first of all, I want to thank you for being with us this morning. Maybe you could begin by giving our listeners a definition of gentrification. Well, I try to help people understand it by uh, getting them to uh, note the root word, which is gentry. And the gentry is uh, the class of people that's just below uh, what was, you know, what's often referred to as the nobility. And so the gentry would be the middle class, what we today call the middle class. And so gentrification is a process whereby quite often middle and upper middle class people uh, move into neighborhoods that are either working class and or poor and um, begin to uh, change the neighborhoods by virtue of their, you know, their power and their influence. So, so th this isn't just about race? No, absolutely. Absolutely not. It is... Uh, again, that term refers primarily to class. And so in some instances you have, uh, when we think about gentrification and the way that it's happening now in America, it's, it's mostly white people moving into neighborhoods where people of color, color live. But in some instances it's also middle-class blacks moving into neighborhoods as well. So what's at stake with gentrification? The state? Uh, what are at, what's at stake? What's at stake? Yes. Well, what's at stake is, is um, a lot of things. In, in some respects, survival, because one of the, one of the things that happens when you have a neighborhood gentrifying is that the taxes in that neighborhood begin to go up. And in many instances, you, the people who live in that, the, the neighborhoods are either poor or elderly or both, uh, uh, you know, elderly and on fixed income. And if they can't afford to pay the increasing taxes, then they get pushed out. And so what's at stake is that quite often you have people who have invested their lives, you know, a huge chunk of their lives in a particular neighborhood and in a city. And suddenly because people with more money and influence move in, the people who have long invested in those areas are forced to move out. 
And so, you know, in some respects, their lives and livelihoods are at stake. There's also a theme of identity that runs through them. Can you discuss that in, uh, in the context of gentrification? Yeah, um, in the book, um, in the novel, um, I have, you know, the novel is set in Atlanta in a neighborhood called the Old Fourth Ward, which is an historic neighborhood where Martin Luther King Jr. was born. And so this neighborhood has a definite identity as a black community. Um, when whites begin moving in, uh, they bring with them their sense of what what it means to have a community. And their sense of community clashes with um, the sensibilities of the black people who have been living in that community for years. Uh, so identity is, um, you know, it's a huge factor in gentrification. I'll give you, um, and so that's how I depicted it in the novel that I wrote. Now, as I've, you know, traveled around the country on book tour, I've heard about real-life situations where identity clashes have occurred in gentrifying neighborhoods in cities, you know, other cities. For example? For example, uh, Harlem of all places, <laughs> which definitely has an identity, a, a strong historical identity. Um, right after, you know, Bill Clinton, you know, we made this, you know, uh, this big deal about Bill Clinton moving his offices to Harlem. Um, Harlem began gentrifying. And uh, in Harlem, there's a park. I went and did a book signing in a bookstore, and uh, there were many blacks there and whites and Asians, and many of the blacks were upset because of uh, um, what's happening at a park in Harlem. It's called Marcus Garvey Park. And every weekend for the past 30 years, blacks have gone to the park and done African drumming. It's, been a, it's become a, a weekend tradition. I've seen it. Well, whites have begun buying brownstones in and around Marcus Garvey Park. And for them, the drumming is noise. And so they have petitioned to stop the drumming in Marcus Garvey Park. And there are so many ironies with that for listeners who are unfamiliar with uh, the historic figure of Marcus Garvey, could you explain? Because he was a black nationalist. Yeah, Marcus Garvey was a black nationalist. And so, you know, in Harvey, in uh, Harlem, you know, you've got uh, uh, Marcus Garvey Park, Malcolm X Boulevard. But Marcus Garvey was um, a, a black nationalist who actually preceded Malcolm X. And uh, he launched uh, a Back to Africa movement, um, you know, at one point. But he was very outspoken, very activist um, in the early uh, 1900s. And so you're right, there is an irony there, uh, because that park reflects sort of the identity of Harlem as well. I want to remind listeners, they're in KUCI in Irvine. This is Justice or Just Us. 
We're speaking with Nathan McCall, the author of Them. There's a little echo, but uh, your voice is coming out great, and that's what matters. Uh, you know, it's interesting because I spend a lot of time in New York, and the last time I was there, I got one of the flyers about uh, Marcus Garvey Park, and the flyer was advocating, you know, catering to black businesses only. Oh, is that right? Yeah. So yeah, was, well, they're, they're, I mean, they're, people there are pretty upset because, you know, I mean, there's that issue, and then there are other issues as well. Um, you know, white businesses are uh, beginning to locate in uh, Harlem. You know, now you have a gap in Harlem, you know, gap stores. <laughs> and so, like, you know, last few times I've been there, um, it looks like, the face of Harlem is beginning to change. And so I think that's what you're seeing is some of the resistance to the change because, you know, in my conversations with people in different cities around the country, what I'm hearing are, is interesting. What I'm hearing is that people aren't saying that evil white people are moving into the neighborhoods and therefore we should resist. They're saying that there's some, some complex forces at work and, you know, there needs to be some public discourse about that. Um, from my sense, I gather that you're getting a mixture of people who are moving into the neighborhoods. Some are white people who embrace diversity and respect cultural difference. Others are whites who move in uh, and, as one person said to me, bring their racist attitudes with them. Uh, and still others are, are whites who might not be overtly racist, but because they have a different sense of what community means, um, they immediately begin to try to remake the neighborhood in their own image. Well, if public discourse is necessary, your book, Them, certainly opens up the line of communication. Uh, and we'll talk about the changing of the neighborhood, but maybe you could begin by uh, talking about the character Barlow, as the story kind of centers around Barlow and, to a lesser extent, the Gilmores. Well, in the story, um, the story centers around Barlow, the main character, and he's a, um, he's been living in the old Fourth Ward for some years. And then when he turns 40, he decides that maybe it's time he should own the house that he's been renting um, for all that time. And so he sets out to save money to buy the house that he's been renting so that he can become more invested in the neighborhood. Around the time that he launches that initiative, that personal initiative, whites uh, begin moving into the neighborhood. And at some point, a white couple moves in next into the house next door to Barlow. Um, Barlow originally is uh, not from Atlanta. He's from a rural area near Atlanta. And, you know, as I give his background, you see that, um, you know, growing up in rural Georgia, he's had some bad racial experiences and his family has had some bad racial experiences. So that 
his perception of whites is colored by those experiences, and he is distrustful of whites. The opening chapter has a great scenario with uh, Barlow having to buy postage stamps that feature the American flag. And I got to tell you, that was one of my favorite scenes because uh, post-September 11th, you didn't need to have uh, a history of being an African-American to resent the flag. You didn't have to have a history of being an African-American to what? Resent the flag. Right. Um, and so Barlow is, you know, Barlow is a character who, you know, he has um, a definite black identity and he resents the irony of um, the flags and all the slogans, you know, saying united we stand, um, when he knows that at other times the experience for African Americans has been, you know, exclusion as opposed to inclusion. And so Barlow is sort of sick of seeing all the American flags and the unbridled patriotism and uh, he asked for a stamp with the picture of a black woman on it. And, um, you know, as you know, in the post office, they, they don't have any of those stamps, but the, the American flag stamps are in abundance, so much so that the, the post office supervisor basically tells them, you don't have, to ha- you don't have a choice, you know, <laughs> you have to. Get the flags. And the irony that he, uh, it's April 15th and it's tax day. Right, right. And, uh, yeah, Barlow, um, part of his, his, you know, one of the ways that he um, engages in his private protest is that he does not uh, submit his income tax, income tax, um, uh, forms until the last day, at the last minute. The book also has a theme of the war on terror and uh, the war in Iraq. So if gentrification is taking place in America's cities, uh, you kind of hint that we're doing the same thing abroad. Can you talk about how you weave those two themes? I just, yeah, I just sort of like did it as a hint. Uh, in one of the later chapters, uh, when the na- when by this time whites have almost taken over the old Fourth Ward, and Barlow is sitting down watching TV, and he's watching an interview in Iraq, where um, um, uh, an Iraq an Iraqi is being interviewed, and he he says over and over. The Americans are occupiers. The Americans are occupiers. And I, you know, I, I sort of toyed with a lot of symbolism in the book and some, you know, used some humor in places. Uh, but in this, this particular instance, I sort of played with the idea of, um, you know, people the, who are gentrifying neighborhoods. In some ways, they look, to the people who have, uh, the long-time residents, look upon them as occupiers. Well, that was a theme during a lot of the uh, 
the National Guard response to the Watts riots and elsewhere was uh, that the National Guard was an occupying force in America's inner cities. That's right. Absolutely. Who is Sandy Gilmore? Talk about that character. Sandy Gilmore is, um, you know, the is one one half of the couple that moves in next door to Barlow. She's a, a white woman who is um, inter, intellectually very liberal and very progressive. She's given a lot of thought to issues, and she's not only given thought to it, but she, in some ways, has been, you know, very active in terms of trying to um, uh, ensure that, you know, justice, to fight for justice in this country. Um, when she moves in, she and her husband, Sean, move into the old Fourth Ward, Sandy um, underestimates um, the level of resentment that she eventually encounters. And over time, she discovers that although she um, has done a lot of reading and thinking about black people and is very much attuned to uh, the injustices that they've been subjected to, she's actually had very little dealings with black people. And so she um, tries to get to know Barlow better. And so you have this interplay, this complex interplay between her and, you know, Sandy, this, this liberal white woman, and Barlow, this um, black man who is distrustful of whites. And so they hold these conversations over the backyard fence. And, you know, the conversations are often uncomfortable and awkward and frustrating. And so in the process, both Sandy and Barlow learn something about themselves as they try to get to know each other. We're speaking with Nathan McCall. He's the author of Them, new book that looks at uh, race, class, and gentrification. Yesterday I was listening to Democracy Now!, the, the radio program, and there was a debate between Michael Eric Dyson and Glenn Ford about Barack Obama. And one of the issues raised was the idea that Americans think that if they just vote for Barack Obama, a victory for him would signify that we've overcome some of the racial divide in the United States. And Glenn Ford disagreed greatly. Is this the folly of a Sandy Gilmore kind of thinking, that we could just vote racism away? Um, yeah, I think so. I think so. Um, I think so because Sandy initially assumed that her presence in the neighborhood um, represented a kind of integration. And what the people in the neighborhood uh, felt was that, you know, integration doesn't just mean you know, the, the, the appearance of or the mixture of whites and blacks, it goes deeper than that, you know. It goes, uh, there has to be substance there. Uh, you can have an integrated neighborhood, you know, that's physically integrated, 
where the people actually don't interact, you know, where they don't engage each other, where they don't uh, embrace diversity and inclusion. And so I didn't hear the debate um, uh, that you're referencing, but I understand the point. And uh, it sounds, you know, it sounds similar to some of the, you know, some of the 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 points that I make in, or attempt to make in this novel. I mean, the logic behind that would be we may as well elect Condoleezza Rice to the president and think that by having both a female and an African-American in the White House, we've overcome both race and gender. Absolutely. And, I, you know, a lot of black people, and I'm, I count myself among them, uh, resent that. You know, um, Condoleezza Rice does not represent me, you know. Um, or me, for that matter. <laughs> yeah, I, you know, it bothers me that, it bothers me that so far some of the most, what we would call successful, certainly the most high-ranking blacks in this country are black people who, um, you know, many black people say, uh, reject their blackness, and Condoleezza Rice is, one, you know, one of them, and Clarence Thomas, who's on the Supreme Court. Um, you know, it sends a message to black Americans about the kind of people who rise in this society. You know, it's the kind of black people who reject their blackness and, uh, you know, are affirmed by, um, you know, accepting certain values that are, you know, um, counterproductive to their own people. One of the things that is perhaps most, I don't know if controversial is the word, but is the ghost, if you will, of Martin Luther King that keeps coming up in them and discussions of, uh, you know, what would King say about the backlash to gentrification? Can you talk about that a bit? Yes. Um, and that's one of the reasons that I chose this particular neighborhood to, to, to use, you know, as the setting for this book, because I know the neighborhood. Um, Martin Luther King Jr.'s birth home is in this, this neighborhood, and his crypt is in the neighborhood, and it's and Ebenezer Baptist Church, where he preached, is also a part of the old Fourth Ward. And is it really going through gentrification, or was that... Oh, it, it really is going through okay. gentrification. And, um, and uh, so, uh, and, and that was, you know, one of the reasons that I, you know, wrote about it. Um, so I saw some, some, an opportunity in telling this story an opportunity to play with some symbolism and some irony because Martin Luther King Jr. preached the notion of the beloved community and he preached inclusion. And so um, I thought it was interesting that here we have a situation where we have the very neighborhood where he was born in the neighborhood where his crypt lies. Um, uh, here you have black people in the story at least, black people organizing to try to find ways to exclude whites from moving into the neighborhood. 
um, I, I, you know, uh, I sort of played with the irony there. Sometimes I used humor, uh, sometimes not. But, um, you know, you had black people arguing among themselves, saying, wait a minute. Uh, and Barlow happened to be one of them. After his conversations with Sandy, you know, we learned that even though the conversations don't turn out so well, um, that's one of the first instances where you get the, the sense that the conversations are impacting Barlow. Because when they have a community meeting and you have some black people saying, let's run the white people out of here, you know, Barlow is one of the people who stands up and says, now, wait a minute, aren't we being hypocritical, <laughs> you know? Um, and he kind of represents... preached inclusion. And, now, you know, white people used to hold meetings to talk about ways to keep us out. Now here we are engaged in a meeting where we're doing the same. And so, you know, in the book, and, and one of the reasons I used fiction, because fiction gave me the flexibility to take readers inside the heads of black residents as well as white residents, um, and, you know, in a way that nonfiction would not have allowed me to do. And you do have quite a bit of humor in the book, the... Um, the free at last bail bonds is uh, one that sticks out, and the idea that let me tell you something. There really is a, a bail bonds company here called Free at Last. That's terrible. <laughs> well, and then there's a, a great scene. I don't want to give everything away, but a great scene where uh, I forget Mr. Gilmore uh, thinks he's about to be assaulted by. Uh, a transient, and the transient thinks he's about to be assaulted by Mr. Gilmore. Right. And um, uh, this is one of the first encounters after the Gilmores have moved into the neighborhood. Um, Sean Gilmore, he considers himself, he would probably describe himself more a uh, moderate than a liberal. Uh, and he moves into the neighborhood more at the urging of his wife. Um, it's something that if, you know, left to his own devices, he probably would not have done. Um, and so at any rate, the, his first encounter uh, in the neighborhood, uh, he's working in the backyard, and uh, a one of the alcoholics who has trampled through the pathway between the two houses for years uh, comes stumbling through there. And they happen upon each other. And, of course, each of them is frightened, uh, you know, afraid of the other. And Sean says to uh, the alcoholic who's called the hawk, he says to the hawk, uh, he picks up a hoe, a gardening hoe, and raises it and says, don't, you know, don't move. I don't have any money. And the hawk looks at him and says, do I? <laughs> and so, um, you know, that, uh, you know, I'm, I wanted to, uh, that was one of the places where I wanted to, to, to make a point and yet at the same time lighten it with uh, some humor. What has been the response to them? You, you're writing 
tends to uh, get people riled up. So what has been the response from the black community, from the white community, and so forth? Um, the response from the black community has been really good. Book sales are going well. Uh, one of the things that we decided we would do, that, that I wanted to do, because, I've, because of the timeliness of the book, is that I didn't want to travel the country and do a book tour and just do and book, you know, just sell books and leave. So I asked um, that um, they also allow me to have forums in in um, as many of the cities as possible. And so what we've been doing is having forums where we invite uh, black civic leaders and white civic leaders out. I do a uh, book reading, and then we have a public discussion. And so the public discussions have been very interesting. And what I have found is, you know, I hear these stories in every city about their particular variation of gentrification. And um, in terms of the response to the book, uh, a lot of people um, have said that they can identify with the experiences that are written about in the book. Um, uh, I think, you know, the response from blacks has been stronger than the response from whites. Uh, what I have found is that many, you know, quite often whites come, will come to the forums um, but uh, seem reluctant to really speak out about, you know, their feelings sometimes. Um, now, I've done a few sessions where there were, um, you know, majority white audiences, and, um, you know, quite often there is, you know, I get the sense that they're reading the book um, out of curiosity um, because many of them during the book signings will come up and say, um, by the way, I, I just uh, need to say to you that I'm, I have moved into a black neighborhood, and so I'm trying to understand the reaction to me, you know. <laughs> and then um, I get some whites, um, particularly here in the, uh, in, Atlanta, in the Atlanta area, whose attitude basically is, um, as one woman said to me, you know, what's the problem? It's just a matter of convenience. You know, this doesn't have anything to do with race or class. We're moving to neighborhoods because of convenience. And the point that I made to her was that, well, you know, the Native Americans were removed from their land for convenience. You know, um, we could put a highway through uh, someone's living room as a matter of convenience for city planning. Right, exactly which we often do. Yes. And so when, you know, when we think about issues only in terms of our convenience, um, quite often we end up uh, disrespecting and even oppressing other people, you know, and, and most often that's the powerless. Well, we're just about out of time, but I want to have a couple last questions. Your writing tends to be very personal, whether it's your memoir or uh, your essays and what's going on. How personal is this issue for you? 
Very personal. Um, you know, in my memoir, I talked about my background where I grew up on the streets, hanging on the streets, and uh, got into a lot of trouble with the law and ended up uh, serving a 12-year sentence in prison for armed robbery. Well, it was while I was in prison and just rethinking my life and, you know, reading that I came to understand how much race impacted the way that I perceived the world and my possibilities in the world, you know. And it's one thing, you know, to have people say, you know, you can lift yourself by your bootstraps, you can be president one day. But it was clear, it became very clear to me that despite what anybody said, um, when I was a teenager, I looked around at the realities in my community and in my household, and I wasn't encouraged by what I saw. Uh, and so I proceeded in life based on how I perceived the realities around me. And that's why I spent time, you know, on the streets selling drugs, robbing people, because I, I, I really didn't see a future for myself. Um, once I, you know, matured and began reading and thinking and, you know, learned that I can shape a future for myself, it, you know, it was like, okay, this is possible. But I didn't see it as possible because of the realities in the world around me. And so, you know, I know, I take this very personally, because in prison I saw so many other Nathan McCalls, people who have potential, uh, but who drew the same conclusions that I did because of what they saw in their immediate environment. And, you know, and so it's, it is very personal for me. Well, yeah, and... In makes me want to holler. You have a lot of passages where uh, I think one of the quotes is, "You realize that there were two worlds. You know, one for blacks that was dark and foreboding, and one for the white neighborhood that was full of promise." That's right. So the the themes are kind of continuing in, into them. Right. Well, I would be remiss if I didn't tell you that uh, I've been assigning makes me want to holler since 1997. And I can't tell you how many students have said that your memoir was the, the book that turned them on to reading for uh, recreation. So I want to thank you for that. And uh, finally, I want to find out, will you be coming to Southern California on a book tour? Um, I've been to, yeah, I've, I may be coming back. I, uh, on the first leg of my tour, I went to um, L.A. and the surrounding area, and then I went from there to the Bay Area um, in late November, I believe. Um, and But I've gotten a couple of requests, uh, and so I may well be, you know, coming back to that area. Well, please keep uh, keep me on your list because I'd certainly like to know. We'd love to uh, talk to you further. And uh, anything else you'd like to add? Uh, no, I think we've we've pretty much covered it. I you know I I've enjoyed the discussion, and um, 
you know, I hope that the, uh, my hope is that this book um, stimulates more public discourse. I will say that there's one trip that I've got coming up this month that I think is a reflection of what needs to happen in, in this country. I was delighted to learn this. In Portland, I'm going to Portland, and they have what they call a restorative listening project, and that was initiated by whites. And they have already begun monthly discussions on gentrification where they invite blacks who live in the neighborhoods and whites who are moving into the neighborhoods to discuss ways that they can, uh, you know, alleviate the negative impacts of gentrification. And I think that's, uh, you know, a great approach to this problem, not only this problem, but many of the other problems that we have in this country as they relate to race and class. It's a great book. It's titled Them. One of my favorite aspects about it is that it, it doesn't answer questions. It, it leaves room for this kind of community forum that you mentioned. And so I encourage listeners to check it out, to read it, and to discuss. Uh, the book is Them. Uh, the author is Nathan McCall. And uh, thank you so much for being with us this morning. Thank you. And uh, you take care. You too. Bye-bye. And uh, we'll be back right after this musical break.